You're listening to Pigeon Post on CICQ 92.3 FM Tourism Radio, coming at you from Admiralty House Communications Museum in Mount Pearl, Newfoundland. Welcome to Pigeon Post, a production of Admiralty House Communications Museum and the Folklore 6740 Public Folklore Course at Memorial University. We are Michaela Muldoon, Katie Crane, and Mariana Esquivel. And we have a story for you today. It's the story of Bernard Groves. He was a soldier during World War I. He was only 15 years old when he captured two German spies near the Marconi Wireless Station, which is currently the Admiralty House Museum in Mount Pearl. So this kid, Bernard, he was armed with a gun and he was doing his sentry duty at the Marconi station. And he really didn't have any concerns about spies. He kind of just figured, you know, if anything, like I'll have to worry about my friends playing pranks on me or something like that. There had been a winter storm recently, so the area was covered in a blanket of snow and it was a very clear winter night. And looking out over the meadow of snow, Grove saw what appeared to be two banks of snow moving and his what? thought was... That's what? crazy. Yeah. His, and a, like At first he thought, though, like, you know, th- this is my friends playing pranks on me, whatever. So he went, halt, who goes there? And then he, like, fired his gun in the sky. And immediately two guys in white camouflage sheets stood up, and they threw off the sheets, and they raised their hands up as a sign of surrender. And he was amazed. Like, I actually captured two enemy agents. And somehow he managed to just keep them at gunpoint, this young teenager, until the authorities in St. John's could take over for him. Uh, And it was later revealed that they had been sent to destroy the Marconi station. Uh, The Germans had been dropped off near Babel's by a sub. That sounds ludicrous. Uh, But we'll give you some context as to what was going on in Newfoundland during World War I and why stories like these still matter today, why they're still told. Uh, So I'm from Newfoundland, and I did not know that Newfoundland had a fairly substantial German population before World War I. And by 1914, they were actually the largest group of residents of non-English-speaking background on the island. And they came from a variety of social classes and professions, and they came from all over Germany. The Moravian missionaries were a religious organization. They went to Labrador, and there were also tailors and other businessmen, gardeners, chauffeurs, even local Newfoundland celebrities that had German origins. And there was a long history of exports to Germany uh, from the island. So Germany was the second largest consumer of iron ore on Belle Island, and one year they bought our entire catch of lobster. No lobster for us. <laughs> nope. Uh, yeah, so, you know, they were professionals. They were experts, and they were recruited by local businesses. And, you know, we had engineers working on the turbines at the hydro station in Victoria because they were purchased from Germany, and they sent German engineers to install them. Uh, the cable station in Heart's Content, they sent a repair person to repair the cables when they were broken. Um We even had boat builders. Someone came here and wanted to set up a boat building operation in Harbor Grace. Uh, But overnight, this all changed. As soon as war was declared, uh, everything was kind of turned topsy-turvy. So Newfoundland was caught completely unprepared by this declaration of war. Uh, There were no blueprints for defense. There were no troops. There was no plans for dealing with residents of enemy nationality. These were people who were part of the community 
one minute, and then the next minute, they were the enemy, and Newfoundland did not know what to do with that. Um, August 7th, 1914, a telegram came from the Secretary of State for the Colonies, which urged the arrest and detention of all German men of army age. And that even included those who were working on British or neutral merchant vessels. And they also encouraged the censorship of mail to and from the German Empire. And by September of that year, the War Measures Act was passed by Parliament, and it authorized the government with powers to arrest, detain, exclude and deport any Germans or German sympathizers, uh, which they claimed was for the security, defense, peace, order and welfare of Newfoundland. And of course, all of these events, like the only thing that they are like prompting is that a new wave of prejudices, it's going to start against people from Germany who are living in, in Newfoundland or like Walter Lippmann actually called these prejudices stereotypes. Um, and well, he said that uh, stereotype, it's basically a group of ideas so uncritically believed that they prevent unbiased observation of clear thinking about a situation. So these are like basically things that we believe blindly, even if we have like no evidence whatsoever to support them. And in Newfoundland, it's very interesting to see how the German stereotype before the war was actually associated with things that are mainly positive. You know, like they were portrayed as hardworking people, very efficient, but then the war begins and the stereotype changes completely overnight, as you were saying, Katie. Yeah. And um, we have like a really cool story. Well, not cool because it's not great what happened to this guy, but, but it's, it's interesting. <laughs> exactly. It's like a great example about how, how things change so quickly. So there was this man called Robert von Stein, so clearly of German origin. And he died in July of 1914, and the St. John's Evening Telegram had, like, praised him. He, They were saying that he was such a prominent and popular citizen, and they were remembering him as an exceptional engineer and scholar. But then, two months later, in September of that same year, the St. John's Mail and the Advocate published another article accusing him of being a spy. And it was said that they, they had proof that von Stein had been gathering intelligence for the Kaiser and they accused him of having two sons serving in the army. So like imagine this guy had already passed away and he had no way of clearing his name. No respect for the daddy. Exactly. And he was actually the first person like to be charged of like being a spy. He was accused of being a spy here. Yeah. Posthumously accused of being a spy. Yes. Pretty nuts. Yeah, that just goes to show that there was a real fear in Newfoundland that Germany would target us because we had long economical ties to Germany and we were close to North America. We were the gateway into Canada and the Mm -hmm. United States. We thought we were a very important piece in the story. And Newfoundland did not have a, a plan to deal with this threat and they needed a plan to deal with this threat. So I think they kind of just latched on to anything that seemed credible. Um, it kind of started with the story of um, the Dresden. It was a, a German cruiser and in August of 1914, the British Admiralty reported that the the Dresden was was in the, in the shores of Newfoundland. It was actually by the the islands of St. Pierre um, and Miquelon, which are just so close off the shore. And the governor at the time, Governor Davidson, 
he improvised a contingency plan that called for the sinking of two ships. That's crazy. In the St. John's Harbor that would block the harbor entrance and then an armed resistance by the people of St. John's in case there were any, like, hostilities from this German cruiser. What I don't get, though, is, like, it was just one ship. Did they seriously think that one ship was going to come and take over Newfoundland all on its own? I mean, I guess the idea was that either they were spies and they were sending information back to a larger German fleet, or they were just the start of... An invasion. A larger invasion. Yeah. And if they could stop this one, maybe they would stop the information getting back and then people would avoid Newfoundland because we can take down a cruiser with an armed <laughs> resistance of the people. It's a great example of the fear that yeah. people were actually feeling. Yeah. So the the plan at this time, so early on, also considered the uh, the surrender of the warship. So they, they guaranteed the safety of the crew if they surrendered, and they said they would transport them to neutral territory, which I don't know what that means. What does neutral mean? Uh, I don't know, maybe Canada? Maybe, maybe Newfoundland was just washing their hands of this whole situation. But Canada is not neutral territory no, but in I mean, World War I. Yeah, but it like it's an indication of that they were still trying to keep it nice. Yeah, they they wanted to follow the rules and they wanted, you know, to to play according to the Hague Convention. Mm-hmm. Um, but this alert about the Dresden being in Newfoundland and maybe attacking Newfoundland was actually a false alarm. Uh, the Dresden was on its way to Brazil. What it was doing in Brazil, I have no idea. But it did not intend to attack us. It never did, and we jumped the gun. Which kind of seems like we did the entire time. Once you hear the stories, we're going to tell you. Um, and and as the, as the war goes on, as the war continues, this fear of enemy attack actually grows. So uh, the people of Newfoundland start suspecting that submarines are in our waters and they're going to bomb St. John's. And, you know, it's not actually until 1918, the end of the war, yeah. that... That the, they can even cross the Atlantic. Yeah, they don't yeah. have the capability. They don't have the technology. But it's new. Submarines are new, and therefore they're scary. And therefore mm-hmm. there's all sorts of things that are are being talked about surrounding them. And because of that, uh, there was another proposal for safety plans. And they were going to organize all the car owners in St. <laughs> John's, which I guess is not many. <laughs> Uh, in 19... Yeah, I wonder how many people. yeah. Um, they were going to evacuate all the women and children to somewhere safe outside the city in the case of a submarine bombing or torpedoing, I guess. Um, and then from June to October of that year, 1917, the Home Defense Committee, which was organized as a protection uh, organization for Newfoundland... Um, they they decided that the St. John's Harbor would be closed at night by a boom across the harbor so nothing could get in and all the lights leading into the harbor, including the Fort Amherst Lighthouse, uh, they'd be extinguished and the whole the whole city would be darkened so that, you know, you like, couldn't see. In the hopes that if the ship did try to land, it would crash if it did see anything at all because it wouldn't be able to see. That clearly. must have been scary, though. Yeah. yeah. Like, just like imagine just like your whole city goes dark, dark. every night mm-hmm. for months. That's, yeah, that that I mean that cre- creates a lot of tension yeah. to live that, with. That yeah, would even add to the fear. So that just shows the power of rumor to affect people's psychological state and subsequently their their actions. Yeah. So rumors defined as like general talk, report, 
hearsay, that kind of thing of doubtful accuracy. So stuff that can't be verified. And oftentimes it's, it's like a wildfire or like a contagion. It just spreads so quickly and out of control. Um, and prejudice is a, like a dangerous partner of rumor because it also relies on, not completely on facts, it often relies on stereotypes. Um, so if you put the two together in this situation, like the prejudice against the, the Germans in this case, or people of German descent, combined with these crazy rumors, you can get some seriously problematic narratives circulating. Oh yeah. And the Germans were like what psychologists call outgroups at this mm. time, and the different qualities that could be attributed to them because of all the anxiety surrounded the war are endless. They could be the target of numerous... Absolutely rumors. anything. Anything yeah. you wanted to say. Yeah, so some sort of scapegoat, basically. Yes. So it plays on people's anxieties, their, their need to control their environment in some way and to react to the tension around them. So the setting of rumors is important in understanding their function as well, because um, many rumors arise in situations of crisis or disaster and war is probably the most extreme example of either one of those. And there are a few things that are more unpredictable than the actions of other human beings. You could even argue that natural disaster seasons are more predictable. So obviously this lent itself to a lot of anxiety among people who, who were concerned about their own safety and the safety of their, their land. Um, so in crises and unusual events are ambiguous by nature. There are questions that arise that can't readily be answered by ordinary means or even at all sometimes. Yeah, but they like, they demand answers. Yes. Yeah. Because people need to know what's going on, how they can resolve this this tension that they're feeling. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and it, yeah. And it's precisely just like how you were saying, Michaela, that prejudices thrive under these conditions of stress and exceptional situations such as war. And because when we're under stressful situations, like some folk beliefs are revived, new misconceptions arise, and of course, rumors magnify. And so like all of these stories that start being shared, they actually lack any sort of like consistency but people are feeling so much stress and paranoia that they believe them blindly and pass them on so like these anxieties come from the ambiguity caused by disasters and unusual situations because like not knowing exactly what is going on not having access to information results in the creation of rumors just because we need to release this tension somehow. And by sharing this information, even if it's like inaccurate, we are able to fool ourselves into thinking that we have some sort of control of what's going on around us. And this is exactly what happened in Newfoundland, where all these rumors about spies emerged as a result of the anxieties provoked by the war. And this, this kind of paranoia about spies was grouped into a word called spyanoia. So I, I love like that, that word. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. So governments and societies can really only handle the stresses of, of things like war by creating a tangible scapegoat from within. Spyanoia uh, was defined as the disease of the latent panic in people. Um, and the quote actually associated with this was, it has become a new virtue to suspect our fellow citizen, to project on him all the evils that are printed in the modern slogans about spies and traitors. So 
when the terror of spyanoia spy reigns, nobody's safe any longer from slander or any sort of accusation. People are afraid of, you know, to do or say anything themselves for fear that it might be misconstrued. Any word they say can be turned against them. Yeah, it kind of becomes an instrument of propaganda, mm-hmm. right? Because the government can exert some sort of control over the people by saying, hey, this is the thing that's going on. But then the people can also exert control over each other. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't like someone, you could just say, hey, this person did this, this person's pro-German activities or something. And then, you know, that person would instantly fall under suspicion, might even be arrested. And also it like, if you report somebody else, it makes you look better. It makes it seem like you're less suspicious. You're You're like the watchdog for the government. You're doing your duty to your, to your dominion of Newfoundland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it like, it was there thing is it was so ridiculous like the things that they would believe about people like there was this one woman named Annie Kleiser and she was just a representative of an ink company from New York and she was in Newfoundland on business but she got kicked out because her husband from whom she was actually separated had German parents like that even that very very distant association was enough to throw someone into suspicion and she wasn't even a resident of newfoundland that's ridiculous and it means they they weren't together like yeah exactly you think like she dislikes her husband and his family enough to be separated from him exactly yeah and and they weren't actually just kicking out people in newfoundland they were they were arresting them we had prisoner of war camps in Mm. uh world war one in newfoundland so Fairly early on in the war, August of 1914, the St. John's Penitentiary, which is now Her, Man- Her Majesty's Penitentiary, uh, it was officially designated a, a prisoner of war camp. And it actually got to be that there was not enough room for all the German prisoners of war they were arresting. So they required the additional use of the police quarters in Harbor Grace, which was the second largest town in Newfoundland at the time. And so we actually visited Her Majesty's Penitentiary, and uh, we spoke with David Harvey, who um, is running the the museum of the penitentiary in the administration building. He has some amazing items, if you have the chance of like going and take a look. Absolutely, and some really cool stories. Yeah. Um, and so he just donated all the logbooks from the prison over the the years to the provincial archives at the rooms and um he had a copy of some of the pages of one of the logbooks from 19 um 14 yeah I think and so. it actually the first entry on the the page was two prisoners of war that were arrested so one of the names on the list was richard varshauer Um, And he was the manager of the Newfoundland Trading Company, and he had been in Newfoundland since 1914, and he had been acting as an agent for the German trading house Rosenstern and Company, uh, which was based in New York. And he he was involved in buying tinned tinned lobster for the German market. He may have been the one to buy the entire catch. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Um, And he was considered suspicious when the war started because he traveled the coast of Newfoundland and he explored all the harbors. He was buying lobster, so to me that doesn't seem super suspicious. suspicious you want to yeah. go where the lobster is. But to everyone else <laughs> that looks like, hey, he's scoping out places for German ships to, to, to land. land. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he also telegraphed a German firm in Philadelphia 
too much, whatever too much is. Um, Probably just once. <laughs> at all. Yeah. So he was arrested. Um, and then he was released on bail because I thought he was an upstanding citizen and that he wasn't going to get into anything. No shenanigans from <laughs> Richard. But then he was subsequently rearrested because there was a lot of growing public pressure uh, to keep all the German people under surveillance. Yeah. Uh, which just, once again, goes to show this was a real fear of the population of Newfoundland at the time. They really thought something was going to happen. Yeah, that the enemy was closer than it yeah. appeared to be. Yeah. And so they had continuing suspicions that he was secretly communicating with the enemy. And this suspicion alone is what linked him to German espionage. And eventually he was deported to Canada after being arrested. And... Um, you know, the prisoners of war complained that they were being housed at the penitentiary um, because they were confined with ordinary criminals and they were sped the same, you know, really sparse diet. They didn't have a lot of exercise. Um, and there are certain things that prisoners of war are allowed to have. And one of them is the right to exercise and the right to be fed adequate food. And at the time, the super, superintendent of the, the prison actually said, you know, I'm not aware of any other circumstances in which the prisoners of war have been confined in a common penitentiary. So this was unusual. We were doing something very bizarre um, in our heightened fear. So they, they improvised another prisoner of war camp in Donovan's, which is in Mount Pearl today. And brought right back to Mount Pearl again. Yeah. <laughs> And so that one operated from July to October of 1915, and it held around 22, 25 inmates. Um, and the security personnel had to camp there because there were no facilities to accommodate them. It wasn't like the prison where you had places for people to stay or it was in town so that they could go home at the end of the night. Um, so they camped right there with the, the prisoners of war. And so the... The internees were provided three meals a day, which was prepared by a camp cook. And the officer in charge of the camp was responsible for enforcing, you know, smoking and restrictions, cleanliness, and making sure that they had no communication of any sort with the outside world, except on postcards. They were allowed to send postcards, but those were, those were supervised. Well, there's this very other interesting case of a man called Franz Theodor Ludge, who was a German-Canadian from Manitoba, who in 1914 was living at the Wilcox Hotel in Placentia. And he was a member of the Canadian militia, so naturally, he wanted to volunteer for active service with the first Newfoundland contingent. And he knew that his name was so German that it might raise suspicions among people. So, of course, he went and enlisted using his mother's name, which was Smith. So, no suspicions there, right? Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, eventually the authorities found out that his real name was very German, and he was accused of being a spy and asked to resign. He was kept under strict police surveillance at the training camp with the prospect of internment into a prisoners of war camp. He was not happy with this decision, of course, and probably this accusation lacked credibility because even Governor Davidson said that, and this is a direct quote, he was believed to be quite loyal. So Ludge tried to apply again for the second contingent and he was rejected again. This happened in December of 1914, and by August of 1915, the authorities of Newfoundland 
ordered him to leave the, the colony. Which is so... I, I, I don't know. I just I feel so bad. Like, this guy wanted to do his part. Yeah. And they, w- they wouldn't let him. Like, he was trying to show his loyalty. Exactly, exactly. What we have here is a foreigner who's willing to prove his loyalty. He wants to fight on the right side. And he's still being shut down just for having a German name. And here I want to point out a very curious and contrasting situation. Because during this period of time, there was an uh, an important number of Syrian Christians living in Newfoundland. These Syrian Christians uh, were actually from what nowadays we know as Lebanon. And they were subjects of the Ottoman Empire, which in theory was sided with the bad guys. But all the Syrians in Newfoundland were exempted from the treatment of enemy aliens because they they have gone above and beyond to publicly prove their loyalty to Newfoundland and the British Empire. They actually went so far as to create the St. Joseph Syrian Benevolent Society, which of course made monetary contributions to the Newfoundland Patriotic Fund, and many of its members volunteered for active service in the Newfoundland Regiment. They were very well-regarded members of the society in contrast to what was happening to the Germans and even to citizens from other countries that were living in Newfoundland at the time. And, you know, I heard that Governor Davidson even went above and beyond for the Syrian community and sent a series of telegraphs across the world to find out if their family in, well, I guess the Ottoman Empire in Lebanon were okay. Yeah. And that, that's not an easy feat to do. No, especially during war. war. Yeah. yeah. But I guess they were a much more public face? Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Germans, I think, were enemy number one during World War One. They, they were the main central powers force to yeah. look out for. Yeah, so Governor Davidson, um, like, you know, referring to the rumors of German spies, he says in uh, his journals of the time, which are at the Provincial Archives, if anyone wants to go read them. They're really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But he said, the spy mania is hitting us hard and trouble is looming up from both sides. Um, So people at this time think that Newfoundland is teeming with spies and that Germany will seize this, seize Newfoundland as an outpost. And then from here, go to Canada and from here, and then from Canada to the States. And so there are just rumors everywhere about spies unsubstantiated but being published in newspapers there was um an article that was published in a newspaper that suggested that there were two secret wireless stations established within 20 miles of st john's and there was no evidence of this but people are really afraid that the enemy is listening in on everything that they do and it's vague fears like this that make you know people skittish they they're imagining threats and they become agitated and that that makes them ripe for panic, which, like, you know, imagination, it, it magnifies the fear because your imagination can run wild. And yeah. then anything that you imagine could really be happening. You don't know. And so, you know, horror stories of war, like, they, they fascinate people, but they also make them really jittery. So they're jumping at shadows. And then these rumors spread and... They make people even more suspicious, and they're discovering spies everywhere, even where they're not. And these rumors, they have very real consequences for their targets. They're not just stories that people are telling. Like, they're leading to real actions. I still wonder, though, like, 
there must have been some people who were just saying things just to stir the pot. Like there's oh, always yeah. probably people like that. Yeah. And it's always really important to look at the human side of this, as you were mentioning, Katie, because people who were targets of rumors faced harassment and ostracization. Um, for example, take James Rickard, who was a German Newfoundlander. He had lived in St. John's since 1893. He was married to a Newfoundlander, but he had to spend most of the war hiding at home and avoiding any sort of public gatherings because he was so afraid of like someone questioning him and accusing him of being a spy. That's terrible. It's awful. Yeah. Uh, actually, it gets worse because his daughter actually remembers that she was stigmatized in school and she had to quit school to start working and help support her family. But I am going to break your hearts even more oh, with no. the next testimony. <laughs> yeah, so be prepared. So there was this guy, Ernst Koch. He was a 44-year-old tailor. He had lived in Newfoundland since 1893. And he was allowed to remain free, but he was kept under very strict surveillance, of course. And he constantly received threats of like the people around him. They were all suspicious of him. They were like accusing him and like just saying really mean things about him. Like things got so bad for him that he ended up writing a letter to the um, Inspector Sullivan, who was like the head of the police at the moment. And I am going to quote uh, a part of this letter just so your heart will break with mine. Because he said, I have with great patience withstood many insults and often had to traverse long byways and lanes to escape the jeers of the ignorant of our community. I also had to abandon the friendship of some of my earlier companions who have tried to define my thoughts about the present conflict and have often misconstrued my honest expressions about the same and have twisted many of my sentences. Such friends I have long discarded. I have often hit the ground with my stick in response to all sorts of names when I felt like hitting my insulters. It was indeed hard to control my temper. And one can understand that it yeah. was really hard to like deal with that. You must have felt so alone. Especially you know? like, these are people that he thought were friends. He yeah. thought that he knew them and then they turned on, they him. Turned on them. Yeah. This testimony precisely illustrates what has been described as a witch hunt. Mm. And it is no wonder that such a term has been used because the attitudes of people in Newfoundland during the First World War resembled those of the people from the 16th and 17th centuries in the United Kingdom during the witch mania times, right? Witch mania, spy mania. <laughs> yeah. Witch hunts, yeah. Uh, just to like show you guys how similar these situations are, I am going to read this quote from the Laws and Customs of Scotland in Matters Criminal. This comes from the year 1678. And uh, we're going to be hearing about the experience of a girl who was accused of being a witch. So her capture recounts what the girl told him. And this is the testimony. One, a silly creature, as he calls her, told him under secrecy that she had confessed, not because she was guilty, but being a poor creature who wrought for her meat and being defamed for a witch, she knew she would starve for no person thereafter would either give her meat or lodging, and that all men would beat her and howl like dogs at her, 
and that therefore she desired to be out of the world, whereupon she wept most bitterly, and upon her knees called God to witness what she said. So, so awful. It's so sad. She's confessing to be a witch even though she's innocent, but she knows that the people around her, uh, like, she depends on them, and without them, she has no way of making a living. She has no way to survive. And this is all happening because of rumors. Yes, and then, like, rather than starve to death slowly, she knows that if she confesses to being a witch, she can get a quick execution. Yeah, she has a better chance of being found a witch than living under the suspicion exactly. of being a witch. And we're talking about how she will lose her way of like earning a living or of like having just something to eat. And I want to go back to the tailor, Ernst Koch, who in this letter that we quoted before uh, says, in my small way of making a living, I have also suffered for besides the general depression of the trade, several of my good customers have forsaken me on account of my nationality. I have had sleepless nights and more days full of worry. I shall request an audience from you and in all probability shall make arrangements for my interment. So this tailor not only lost his friends, but also his means of earning a living and would rather be interned as if he were guilty than continue to be ostracized by his peers. Um, my favorite story though, personally, is the story of Rock Rockwell Kent. Um, oh man. <laughs> Dad Rockwell Kent. Yeah. Rockwell Kent. He was an American dude, actually. He was living in Brigus with uh, his family, but he had a really strong appreciation for Germany and for German culture. And even before war broke out, he was like widely disliked by a lot of people because he was just, he had an abrasive sort of personality. That's putting it nicely. Yeah, yeah. That is a very, very polite way of putting it, but... In 1915, he was actually deported for pro-German activities, and so he had been kind of like expressing his admiration for Germany and his contempt for Britain, wishing Germany victory, waving to the German internees in the POW camps, telling them that the Kaiser was winning and would free them soon. Which well, is not the most sensitive thing to do no. in this context. <laughs> exactly. And also, like... Those internees who very likely want nothing to do with the Kaiser are probably like, no, man, shut up, stop. Like, right? That That's only putting more suspicion on them. Exactly. And as if all of this didn't seem bad enough, he also made signs around the entrance of his house that said, warning, chart room, wireless station, bomb room. And because of all this, he was accused of espionage. Of I mean, course. He from a layperson's perspective, seems way more suspicious than a, a tailor just exactly. doing his daily duties. You yeah. know, like... But there was the theory that because he was so, like, over-the-top obvious that he couldn't be a spy, because what spy would be that? I know, like, yeah. bright neon signs. Look at me, I'm a spy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not very careful. But then... You could also say that because he was so extreme and that would throw his pe people off his trail, that, that means that he's still a spy. It could go anyway, but the point was he made people super uncomfortable with all the things that he was saying. Um, and the police, when they arrested him, they, they even insisted that Kent looked like a German, to which he cleverly replied, have you ever seen one? I mean, and the police we had no answer. What? 
what does a German look well, like? Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's racial profiling. Yeah, because they yeah. all look the same, of course, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, understandably, like a lot of people were were really angry about the sort of things that he was saying. It was a really fearful, uncertain time. Um, Newfoundland, not its own country. It's still a colony of Britain. It's kind of, you know, out in the open and exposed relative to places like Canada and the United States. And so he was just being really inconsiderate of these people's fears. And he was just exacerbating it. Yeah, yeah. he was. So the the most angering thing about Kent's story, in mm-hmm. my opinion, is that Joey Smallwood publicly entertained and apologized to him in 1968. Wow. Yeah. None of the other Germans or people of German ancestry from Newfoundland who did anything, they they didn't do anything at all, but they didn't receive an apology. And Mr. Kent, Mr. Loudmouth Kent, did. Who wasn't even a German. He was an American citizen. Exactly. He gets an apology. Wow. It's... Now we go back to our original story, the snow heaps. So it's a legend. Like let's let's just put it out there. That's that's straight up a legend. So rumor and legend they're constantly interacting with each other. You know, they're feeding each other, they're playing off each other. They both arise from reality. They both have an air of plausibility. They've got concrete detail in the stories which kind of ground them in this reality. So legends, you know, they they incorporate place names, they have detailed settings. It's just all an elaborate attempt at creating credibility mm-hmm. by arranging the plot details to make it sound like Plotable. it actually happened. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe the Snow Heaps story, it's like, maybe it's a legend that, that formed out of a rumor. Maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe this guy actually saw something or maybe he wanted to feel important but what we do know because we have seen Bernard Grove's service records he was only stationed at Admiralty House the wireless station between March and June of 1916 so you know what was the weather like was there even snow could this have even happened yeah and the legend as we've heard it in the beginning also says that he was 15 at the time and the story kind of relies on how incredible it was that a, a teenager apprehended two grown men. Who were spies. Who were spies. spies. You know, they're, they're trained military mm-hmm. experts, and he's just a teenager. But he was born in 1897, which makes him 19 at the time. Uh, and so look, he, was, he was an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know. And the, the submarine that was supposed to have dropped... Uh, the spies off at Babel's and they walked to Mount Pearl. That's a long walk. <laughs> um, so the, the submarine was supposedly commanded by Otto Oppelt. Uh, he was the captain of the submarine that dropped the, the spies off. And he had some very interesting pre-war connections with Newfoundland. Uh, he was brought to St. John's by the Reed family, who was the were the owners of the Newfoundland Railway, big, well-known family in Newfoundland. And he worked as their chauffeur. Um, but he was actually known throughout St. John's for his wrestling skills. He competed in a lot of local contests, and he used the name Young Hackenschmidt. Um, and he, he, yeah, he was a celebrity at the time. Wow. And he returned to Germany in 1914, and he stayed there, as far as I know. Um, he's reported to have commanded submarines that sunk ships in Newfoundland waters and deposited the crew on the shores of Newfoundland. 
And that all sounds very interesting because he's supposed to have known his way around Newfoundland being from Newfoundland. There's no reports of random submarine crew. No, we've already discussed how the submarines couldn't even cross. Right, so they're happen until 1918. Yeah, so... You know, there's no reports of ships being sunk in Newfoundland waters that have their crew magically deposited by a generous German of local knowledge. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it didn't happen. I'm just gonna, just gonna say that never happened. But he was a German that everybody knew about because he had been a celebrity. And so maybe in, in attempting to fill the gaps in their knowledge that the people collectively added to this legend in the way that they do with contemporary legends. And so maybe this was the case for Otto Alpelt. Maybe his name got attached because he was a name that everybody knew. Of course. And it sensationalized the story. It made it a good story to tell. And so the story continues on. What we do know happened at Admiralty House at the wireless station was a man named Joseph Schnitzer uh, was arrested. Um, He was a Jerusalem-born American citizen and... Apparently, he was in the vicinity of the Marconi wireless station, um, speaking German. I'm not sure what he was doing there, but he, there are records of him being arrested and deported for this. There's there's no real details that we could find, and and this goes back to the ambiguousness. It creates this anxiety. It demands details, and you know, it's it's the only concrete evidence of anything happening, and it happened around the same time as the Bernard Groves snow heap snow heap story so maybe the two got conflated conflated yeah. you know it's possible human memory is selective especially on controversial matters and at all periods in history um, and especially troubled times there have always been outgroups who become the scapegoats of the the dominant body of people they get blamed for all the problems within society um, it's it's happened you I mean, know. it happened in the 1600s. It happened in the 1600s. With the witch hunt? With the witch hunt, yeah. yeah. It's happening today. And uh, these kinds of legends, they just change and attach to new places and new sources, and they keep going. That's something we got to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially because we, as folklorists, we're looking at all of these rumors and legends, and that creates some sort of space for us to be activists, to like really look into what goes into these stories, where are they coming from? And when we can, well, just like contextualize them, if we like somehow help for all of this like panic to not like spread and damage people, because as we've seen with these stories, these are people whose lives are being impacted negatively by all of these rumors. Yeah, we have uh, like a social responsibility Mm -hmm. when we're doing our work to to keep these things in mind. Yes, and we should also, like, anytime we hear a rumor, consider not just the context, but the performer, like the person who is spreading the rumor, even if they're not the source, if they're willing to retell it. And why are they telling why? it? Why, yes, exactly. What What is the reason behind that? Can we reach them? Can we, you know, figure out what their anxieties are that is, you know, causing them to forward this rumor and perhaps help them figure out uh, a more productive way to deal with their anxieties and bring them up to speed with a more realistic viewpoint of what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, of course. We need to do better. All this to say, these were real people 
that experienced this. These were your everyday people, friends, family. You know, a lot of them had Newfoundland wives. A lot of them had lived in Newfoundland for a long time. Some of them were British citizens. But only Rockwell Kent has gotten the formal apology. So That's upsetting. We'd like to take this time to apologize to the the men and women who were detained on suspicion of being German, whether they were German or whether they weren't, it doesn't matter. Those who were harassed, even if they weren't detained and, you know, who lost their homes, yeah, who lost their jobs, um, who had their friends and maybe family turn on them. We're sorry on behalf of everybody. Yes, we're sorry. Sorry. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Most of the stories referenced here can be found in the book Vikings to U-Boats, The German Experience in Newfoundland and Labrador by Gerhard Vassel. We also want to thank Michael Westcott, who's a PhD candidate in history at Memorial University, David Harvey from the Penitentiary Museum, and the Provincial Archives at The Rooms. They are all great sources in case you want to learn more about this fascinating subject. If you would like to find out more about the Pigeon Post podcast or any of the ongoing projects at Admiralty House Museum, you can visit their website at www.admiraltymuseum.ca. They're also on social media at at Admiralty Museum. You can also subscribe to the Pigeon Post on Apple Podcast. Thanks for listening.